This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hello, and welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Cameron McCormick. And from a place of joy and pride, I get to introduce our guest this week, Kramer Hickok. Now, I first met Kramer when he was 16 years old while I was watching another client of mine compete at an AJG Invitational in Houston, Texas. And I was impressed with his game as you would be if you were watching a highly ranked junior player. However, there were evident gaps in his skill set that kept him from being a quote-unquote top-of-the-class type of player. Now, this was Kramer's existence for pretty much the entirety of his college career as he would find himself battling it out at the University of Texas for a contributing role on a team that then and now boasts some of the best players in all of college golf. And while Kramer's scoring abilities were below the required and desired standard to separate from the pack in junior golf, then collegiate golf, and in his first couple of years as a professional, what was unwavering through all this time was Kramer's passion and purpose to turn over all stones in pursuit of mastery and unwavering was his commitment to do the work, both the hard things and the easy mundane things, as he slowly and progressively closed the gap between where he was and the vision for what he knew he could achieve. I've been honored to share this journey with him for the past three years as a coach. Now in the last few weeks, Kramer has demonstrated that all that callous earning hard work, the early morning tea times, the regular 10 hour training days, were foundation for what he could and would ultimately achieve. And those could and woulds that are talked about so much as we strive for greatness came to be over the last few weeks where Kramer earned graduation, climbing the performance ladder to the highest level, earning a PGA Tour card via his top 25 finish on the web.com tour season money list, and then put the cherry on the top last week when he won his first web.com tour event at the DAP Championship, vaulting him into second place on the season money list. There's much depth to these types of conversations as Corey and Kramer unpack the journey from good to great and then beyond the world class. I hope you enjoy it. Freshman year in in college, my scoring average was like 75 or 76. It was way over par and each year I got better and better. But I had a certain delusional quality that I think all successful people have to have and it's this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get there. And now let's put it in the work. Let's go work on the right things. You will never meet a CEO of a company or a highly successful guy that did not work his butt off. And that was my whole mentality was I didn't necessarily need the validation that it was going to happen because I knew it was going to. It was, okay, how can I get better this day? How can I, you know, Rome was a building a day and it was built over time, but it was built by each day there was a plan. Okay, this is what we're going to do each day. We're going to lay this brick as perfectly as this brick can be laid. We're going to do this every single day. And soon Rome was built. I'm not setting out when I'm shooting 76, I'm not trying to shoot, change my scoring average to 68 overnight. I'm saying, okay, what can I do today to get better? And let's do this every single day and we'll add up the pieces. And soon I'm going to become a scoring average of 68 or 69. So it's just that certain belief in putting in the work and knowing that you're doing the right things, those things are going to add up into something spectacular. So there's two pieces there that we need to talk about is one, the support system that was around you during that time. But before we get into that, 
there's some real like passion in what you just said and about that belief that you're going to have the discipline to work really, really hard. And that comes from great motivation, right? Another conversation of many that when we're trying to figure out this as coaches is where that motivation comes from. So there's that internal, that just intrinsic drive that certain people have, right? And you have it, but then there's also an external drive. And so it's the, the difference between a kind of goal orientation of, am I motivated because I just want to get better? And that means a lot to me personally, or is there a little ego orientation to that to where I want to be kicking everyone's ass? I want to show, and, and even for you, there's, there has to be certain element of, I didn't play on that national championship team. And I, I want to prove to everyone that I belong. And there's researchers that would say, well, the best performers are all intrinsic, right? It's mostly intrinsic. They're not motivated by those external factors. But in some of these conversations, I feel like there is some external factors. I feel like the people that we talk to sometimes do have a chip on their shoulder and do have that kind of ego orientation where, you know what, I'm going to show people. So, and I could be off in your case, but I'm just curious because there is so much drive, there is so much discipline. If you could say, well, there's, there's a certain percentage of it that's external and speak to that a little bit, or if it's just all just that fire inside. Yeah. I think my motivation to work hard is, is simply just to be the best I could be. I want to see how good I can get if I work on the, exactly the right things I want to see if I can get to be number one player in the world. I just want to, I'm a competitive person to begin with, but I wouldn't work as hard as I work. I wouldn't be as disciplined as hard as I worked unless I was passionate about what I do. I think that's the first thing that has to be there. If you're not passionate about what you do, you're going to ultimately work not as hard and you're going to end up giving up. And, and like you said, it can't be extrinsic. It, you, it's got to be within, you can't be motivated to make money. You can't be motivated for cars and, and, and things like of that nature. You have to be motivated for something bigger than yourself. For me, it's to be able to, to have a platform big enough in order to give back and help other people's lives. And I think that's a motivation that is such a solid foundation in order to help other people that it's not about me. Right. And certainly I do. I'm extremely motivated about, you know, being where I was and getting beaten by people because I am so competitive. I want to beat everyone. Right. That's my question is right. how much of it, how much of it comes from your desire and Clearly, we know what kind of guy you are, and we know the altruistic piece of you, and, and that you have this internal drive, mastery, orientation to get better. But how much of it is you want to kick somebody's ass that has beaten you in the past, and that somebody looks back at that 2012 team and says, sees that you're not in that lineup? And I could be totally off. I'm just curious. 100%. I'm extremely, extremely motivated to go beat everyone that used to beat me. I feel like my name growing up has been overlooked so many times. People don't include me in the conversations of, hey, go out to watch the web event because Maverick McNeely is going to be there. Lee McCoy is going to be there. I've never been a part of that. And I never, I never have grown up either. I want to be a part of that. And I want to be a part of, okay, the same way Jordan Spieth is, the same way, you know, you see Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, Tiger Woods, their face everywhere. I want to be a part of that. And because you want to be among, you want to be considered for the kind of golfer that you, that you have that belief. Right. For, right? Exactly. Exactly. I just, I, and I also want to prove that hard work beats talent and when talent doesn't work hard, I think it's just, it's the one thing that people are missing. People do not understand that if you go work hard and you work hard on the right things, there's no way you cannot get better. It's impossible not to get better. People want all the glory and the fame without putting in the work. How is that possible? Yeah. So let's speak to the discipline part there a little bit further, because 
You're right. That's a simple formula, right? It's like, go bust your ass on the right stuff. And it's really hard for that not to work. But time and time again, we see that people aren't willing to do that piece, right? To put the hard work in. So you have a reputation and we know you to be one of the most disciplined and one of the most hardworking individuals that we've ever encountered. And even me personally, you know, thinking about my own self-discipline and thinking about the self-discipline of my clients, I'm curious when you're out there working hard and the inner voice says, you know what, Kramer, that's enough for today. I think you've worked hard enough. Everybody else is gone. Let's, let's go ahead and call it a day. What is your, your strategy? What is the actions that you take that quiet that inner voice and say, no, we're going to do more today. We're going to do way more than yeah, everybody else. I, I think it, it starts with me recognizing that someone out there is always working harder. If you go home after... In your case, I think you may not be able to say that, but I, I don't want to quiet that voice. <laughs> Whether it's yeah. true or not, <laughs> right. I'm telling myself that, hey, when I, let's say I put in a six or seven hour day, I'm telling myself someone's putting an eight or nine. And my whole mentality is if I'm going to work eight or nine hours a day and someone else is working four or five, as long as we are working on the same things, I'm going to get twice as better as he is every single day. I'm going to be where he's going to be I'm going to be in five years where he's going to be in 10. Right. Okay. And then you add the stuff that we've done together with Altus and to working smart and working on the right things. I'm going to get better than he is maybe (laughs) three times as much. How is that not motivating? And I think when you start to have the validation, like when I start to see the success that I've had, it motivates me to work harder. Because you see this validation. Oh my gosh. I I was kind of telling myself this, but actually it it does work. Now I've seen it firsthand and I know it works. And a lot of it growing up, like when we were talking about me at Texas working hard, I didn't see a lot of the results. That's when it was really hard. When I'm putting in the work and you're not seeing it, then gradually it starts to come and starts to come. Like Rome is not built in a day. It's just each piece and you got to trust the process, trust what you're doing, get a little bit better each and every day, then it adds up. But that has pushed me to work out, to get up at 5 a.m. now and to work out at 5.30 to 6.30 instead of being here at 7.30. So I'm now trying to put in longer days because I know now that I have the validation. Okay, what I was doing was working, but we can still do more. Yeah, that's and that's a massive insight that you bring up is in something that as coaches, we're always trying to do is to help our clients see the direct impact of their efforts. As soon as you start to see that direct impact of all the hard work that you're putting in, like you said, it becomes this kind of aha moment where it's like, Oh man, this motivates me to continue to do this, this hard work. And golf is, and golf is a game where you don't see immediate results. And a lot of people want that immediate results because they don't, they want the quick fix. They want the things that and you know they might put in the work for two or three weeks, and they think it's going to pay off. Well, it's it's not. It's what you it's what you did in January that's going to pay off now that we're in September. So it's a long term deal. It's okay. I'm putting in work now. This is going to pay off next year. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Let's talk about a couple of things that Cameron kind of prepped me on and his work with you. He's identified a couple of things that he thought would be interesting for us to chat on is one that you're really good with your imagery, meaning that 
you've got these past successes, the, these moments that on the golf course that you hit really good shots or you were in contention and you executed well, that you have this, this library that you're building that kind of allows you to build your self image and you can reference back to those when uh, necessary. And then the second thing is that you document really well, that you're taking notes on tournaments in great detail, even training sessions. So one, I'm curious if those are connected, if you are documenting that those moments of success to, to refer back to and to just get into more detail on what that documenting looks like. Yeah. I found a routine that works very well for me and I'm always trying to expand and refine that routine to make it even more and more better. That's going to allow me to play the best golf possible. And it's to the point where if buddies are asking me to go to dinner and I need to get a workout in, I'm not going to dinner. Everything I do every single second of every day is focused on me playing better golf. And there's not one thing that I will let get in between that. And not even a cold beer, not even a cold beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that and I didn't realize that. So when you were drinking out of the trophy, yep. it was the first beer of the year. No. So they had actually, that was actually supposed to be towards my caddy. I had told them my caddy was doing that, but I do not drink during tournament weeks yeah, at all. Yeah. So it was a little bit true, a little bit not. Right. Okay. But, sorry. I interrupted you. So no, go back to what you're documenting. So what I'll do is I'll just take notes every single day. So it's starting on Monday. I, I always take Monday off. And whether it's a travel day or even if I get into the next event Sunday night, I take Monday off because I think it's important to refresh my mind so I don't have brain fog throughout the week. And when you're playing six or seven weeks at, in a row, that's just important. So what I'll do is each and every day is, okay, I woke up 6.30. I had this for breakfast. I marked down exactly what I ate. I got to the course at this time. I hit balls for 45 minutes. I went and played nine. I and what did I do that night? I, I had a money game with blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I felt this. This is what was going on. I had a right miss with my driver. I was hitting some pulls in my putts. I went back to the putting green, putt for 45 minutes, chip for 30 minutes. And then you get into the details. Okay, what did you actually do during those 35 and 45 minutes? And then what were your mentally, what were you thinking while you were playing? Was I focused on getting aggressive or was I trying to limit mistakes? Was I having fun? Was I every single detail matters? Because like we just said, 1% is, is huge. So I'm trying to figure out that equation in order for me to be able to play the best golf. And, and the coolest thing is I'll look back at some tournaments and say, okay, well, that, that week I wasn't thinking clear. Now, how much sleep did I get? And was I doing, doing my sleep cycle? Was I waking up when I was the most awake? Or was I waking up when I was more in my REM sleep, when I was more deep sleep? What did I eat the night before? How did that affect my drogginess? How much water did I have? There are so many variables that can allow you to play better golf and that can give you that extra 1% and ultimately achieve great golf. But looking back at some of the tournaments where I played the best, I'll look back and I'll find things now that I'm not doing. Okay, well, I made a, I hit 100 four-footers in a row. I didn't have to worry about my speed control that week as much because I was making the four-footers come back right in the center, so I was able to free up my putting. And then in turn, because my putting was freed up, my iron game was freed up. <laughs> it's just on and on and on. So I cross things off that aren't so, working. I check the ones off that are. So now looking back on last week and documenting everything that, because that really becomes the template, right? Right. As you're looking ahead, you, you, you had ultimate success last week. Right. So what were the things, if anything, that stood out to you as being, okay, I, I need to make sure that in future weeks I add this, if right. there was anything that stood out like that? Yeah, tons of wedge work. And I do think it varies week to week, right? right? Because, you, the golf course right? because you, you go play the course and you realize, okay, I need more drivers or more wedges this week. But 
last week was a, a course you really had to have everything going for you. So it's a good, it's a good template to look back on, but the putting aspect was huge. I went back and putt for minimum of an hour, an hour a day. And I didn't need, I was putting well. I've refined everything. So I went and did my drills. I went and knocked out my form work. Can you talk about your form work a little bit? Yeah. First thing I do is I get a a putting mirror and I check my, my eye line and then I'll check my setup because I think that's the first, the fundamentals are the most important thing with, with anything. I think those are the first things that you should check if you're starting to get off in a certain area. So I check, I make sure my left eye is just inside the left, the inside of the ball. I'll check my, I'll, I'll use a gate drill. I'll make sure I'm hitting the ball solid. It's a, the Pell's putting clip. I just want to make sure I'm hitting it solid. Cause if I'm hitting a little heel, I'll start to hit pulls and start aiming right. And my line gets off and, and everything kind of gets off of that. So I want to make sure my setup's good. I want to make sure I'm hitting it down my line. And then I'll start getting on breaking putts and checking my aim for breaking putts. So I'll put a stick down and try and hit, you know, roll the ball parallel to the stick and then make sure my putting, my putter is lined up perpendicular to the sticks to make sure it's square to my target line. So that's all the form work that I'll do. And then I'll get over and I'll do my speed putts and I'll work from 20 feet all the way back to 60 feet. And, you know, it's the drills that, that you and Cam have given me, which is, you know, after you hit it, don't even call it off and see if it's good or not. So I say, I want it to be air detection, air right? detection. Yeah. Right. So, and then I'll do that uphill and downhill. And then I'll start working my four footers and I want to make typically it's 50 in a row. And if I'm struggling on the week of fours, I'm going to make it a hundred. Well, then I go to six feet and then it's, it's 80% or 80 or 90% from six. I actually do four to eight and then eight. And when I go eight feet, it's 75%. And then when I go to 12, it's 50. And then when I go to 15, it's it's 30. And I want to do all the form work first. I want to check all those boxes off. And then I want to get into playing like scenarios. That way I can be able to tell how I'm really putting Was there a revelation that you had at any point to where you stepped up this attitude of do more, of work harder? Was was there any moment in your development or has it just been always been a part of you? It, it's definitely started when I got to Texas. When I was growing up at, or back in high school, you know, I went to small school in Trinity Christian Academy and I was the best player on the team. And we had a good team. We had four guys go D1, but I was certainly not putting in the work that I've been putting in now. And getting to Texas and being on a national championship team coming from a small high school where I was number one and then going to a team where I didn't even start, I quickly realized I had to get better. I thought I was good enough. I thought that I had the game because I'd always, I'd always won tournaments. I'd won state and now I'm not even starting on this team. I was playing against guys where I said, okay, if I can't beat the guys on my team, how are we going to meet guys on a PJ tour? And it was very simple. And what I realized from watching guys like Jordan, Dylan Fratelli was, okay, my practice needs to get smarter. I'm putting in hours, but it's not as important as putting in smart hours. I need to be more efficient. I need to be smarter. That practice needs to translate to tournaments, needs to translate to consequences. It needs to translate to when I'm feeling under pressure. Everything I do on the course has got to benefit me in tournament mode. Yeah, very good. Awesome, man. Let's talk a little bit about support structure. So, Everybody that we've talked to, every high performer that we know of, that we read about, doesn't typically do that on their own. They have some support around them, whether that be uh, family, whether that be coaches around them. And for you, what I'm most interested in is, and you kind of 
discuss that as you talk about Texas and being in that group, which on another topic, your reaction to that situation is another differentiator. It's another edge earner is that a lot of people go to TCA and they're the best. And then they go to the situation where they're not the best. That's a perceived failure. Some people kind of shrivel and they fail ultimately. And some people react in a way that's like, you know what, I'm going to get better. But you had that peer group and we call it a stretch peer group. When you're around, when you surround yourself with people that are maybe just a little bit beyond where you are right now, they're a little further down the road, but they're on the same road. How important was, and, and we can discuss, I think that your relationship with Jordan is an important one to discuss, because I think that you would attribute a lot of the recent success to the proximal role model that even in a, in a very good friend and roommate certainly is a model of success that you can follow. Right. So just speak to a little bit to how important that kind of support structure has been and how you've used that to your advantage. I think it's been huge. Uh, you know, like you said, surrounding yourself with successful people, you got to get the toxic people out of your life because ultimately you're going to end up becoming like the people you hang out with. And for me, I wanted to put myself around the best players possible. I had the, you know, scholarships to go to Oklahoma and lesser school, lesser qualified programs and where I could start immediately. And I said, okay, now is that the smart thing to do? Is that to, to go play every tournament? People deal with this all the time. They're asking me, okay, sure. do yeah, I want to go? conversation we have all the right. time. Yeah. Do I want to go to a school where I can start or do I want to go to a school where it's going to be hard for me? Is the experience of playing college golf tournaments more important than working my way up? And my mentality was, I want to go somewhere where I got to work my way up because I need to know, I need to be pushed. I need to be pushed. I need to see what I'm striving for. I want to know that I'm playing against the best players and I'm competing against them. I'm competing against Jordan. I'm now beating him. Okay, I can beat him. I can beat anyone. And if I'm playing against guys that are worse than me, how can I get better? And I don't have the motivation. I don't have the drive that I'm stretching for. I'm reaching for to go out there and work that extra hour. I can tell you right now, if I had started every tournament or if I had gone to a school that wasn't as qualified as Texas, then I wouldn't have worked as hard. That's for sure. But but to your point, having a guy like Jordan around and just to the support system of whether it's my family or uh, my friends and, and coaches and stuff, putting yourself around successful people is going to help you get better because I'm always learning and I'm always seeing what it takes to get better. And okay, Jordan's doing this, Jordan's doing that. I'm not going to necessarily go out and try and do what Jordan's doing, but I'm picking up little things that are going to help me. Can we, can we talk specifics there? Is there anything that comes top of mind, any habits, any actions or tools that you've picked up from Jordan specifically? Yeah. Um, preparation, huge. And you know, Jordan is, he's looking at past results in tournaments and he's checking the weather from those results. He, he knows where the wind is like, yeah. <laughs> like, like you go outside to walk your dog and he knows where the wind is he, going. Like, he's a weather yeah, freak. Yeah, exactly. And I've started to do that. You know, I, I typically I show up to a tournament that I, and everything grant this year has been my first time playing an event. So I don't know how the course conditions are playing versus past results. So I need to ask people. So first thing I'll do is Monday when I'm taking the day off, I'll, I'll look up the past results from the last however many years they had the tournament. Okay. Next thing I'll do is I'll go check the weather from each round. Okay, I know it was windy. I know maybe it's cold. And then I'll start talking to people that played the past years. Okay, last year was it firm. I knew that this last web event, seven and eight under is one to two years prior. I also knew the wind was up and I knew it was firmer conditions. So I, I knew that getting the 14, 15 under was realistic. And that was ultimately what won. And I'm playing with players that are saying, man, I'm just giving this too, course too much respect. And I'm out there 
saying, you know, they had played the two years before, they're thinking it's going to be 200 day and it's ultimately going to be four or five. So having that preparation and looking back and knowing how the course's conditions are going to play and what the scores are going to be each day is one of the things I learned from them. Yeah, cool. So let's continue down the conversation of last week specifically. So have been in contention other times. What lessons did you draw back on? Not just the success moments that we spoke of, but just from the pressure of being in contention that allowed you, because wire to wire victory, right? So right. I mean, you, you had to sleep on the lead a few times, not just on Saturday night. And so with that comes a little bit of a burden, right? Of, Hey, I'm supposed to win this. I have this lead. I've had this lead the whole time. Is there anything that you drew back to any lessons from being in contention prior to that, that you felt like really served you well as you're kind of working through that mentally? Yeah. I, I think one of the biggest things was, is being the hunter and not the hunted. And instead of having the mindset that other people are chasing me, it's I'm chasing someone. It might be an imaginary number, mm -hmm. but I'm going to go and try and stretch his lead. And I'm going to go try and bury these guys. It's just, I want to win by six or seven instead of feeling like, okay, let's not screw this up. And there's a huge difference in the mindset mentality and how that translates in how you play aggressive swings versus care, uh, maybe trying to just hold on here or maybe just hit it to the fat part, not trying not to screw up versus trying to expand. And that was what I learned from some of the past experience that I had where when I was leading, I was trying to do too much. I was trying to be perfect. Instead, it was more, let's go out and let's win by six or seven here. Okay. So we're in the final round. You have this attitude of the hunter and not the hunted, but then you come out of the gates and you bogey the first two holes. And I don't know, where did that put you when you, when you bogey the first two, were you tied for the lead at that point or were you just one ahead? So I, I was one ahead to start the day and three shots in front of Samuel Bay, who was third place. So my mentality going in was that I was playing a match play event against Steven Yeager, which is the ignorance and the inexperience of me being in that position. Three shots is not nearly enough to do that. And it's way too early in the round. So I got away from what I'd normally do in playing well as I was playing against someone else instead of playing against myself in the golf course. So I bogey the first two holes and have this wake up call and as I'm walking, I just three putted from eight feet to go you know, wow. from lean by one on the second hole to now in a tie for third because Hunter Mayen was playing well. And, and right as I walked off the green, I said, you know, what would the farmer say? And, <laughs> you know, my caddy and I had been using this, this saying for the last four or five events. And, and basically it's, it's the story of a, of a Chinese farmer. It's an old parable. And we have a lot of parables. Like we speak in metaphors and parables and I don't know this parable at all. This one's awesome. And it's, it's helped me countless times. And I actually have a great story of not only how it helped me this week, but how it helped me in the past, ultimately secure my PJ tour card. And the story goes like this is, you know, there's a Chinese farmer and he had one son and one horse. And one night a storm came through and, and blew open the door to where the horse's stable was and a horse ran away. The neighbors came over and said, oh, what bad luck you have. First, you were nearly broke and now you're absolutely desolate. You have absolutely nothing. And the farmer said, it is neither good nor bad. So that night, the farmer leaves the, the horse's gate open and next morning comes back with a bunch of his friends. So now the horse, now the farmer has seven or eight horses. Neighbors come over and said, oh, what good fortune you had. First, you had nothing and now you have absolutely everything. You're the richest man around. And the farmer said, it is neither good nor bad. 
Well, the farmer's one and only son the following day was so excited to see all the horses he got on one of the horses and the horse bucked him off and he broke his leg. Neighbors come over again and say, oh, what bad luck you have. And the farmer said, it is neither good nor bad. And the final day, the king and his army are coming through and picking up all the young able-bodied children and teenagers to go find a soon an, in a war that they were soon to die. And because the farmer's son had broke his leg, they didn't pick him to go to find a war. So what is good and what is bad? And what I found out is there's often what you perceive to be good. There's such a paradox into what it actually is. So I told myself in that round that, okay, we bogeyed the first two holes. Typically I would say, this is bad. I'm playing bad. Instead I said, this woke me up. It was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Instead, it's, it's, I had the mindset now, I had to restart everything. I said, okay, what do we do when we play well? I play against myself. I play against the golf course. I'm two over par. How are we going to get it back to even? I don't want to say, okay, I'm going to get it back to four or five under because that that's a goal that seems too far-fetched and maybe not obtainable. I said, let's get a small goal and let's go after it. So let's get it back to even. And okay, how am I going to do that? Well, it's each shot, one shot at a time. Let's play against myself, which is, okay, let's stay patient. Let's stay in the zone. Let's not get too aggressive and try and make a birdie. Let's play against the hole which is the golf course, and let's play the hole backwards. Let's play this side of the fairway. Let's keep ourselves below the hole. And I don't want to look up to any par fives and say, okay, that's, that's a birdie hole. That's, that's down the road. I want to stay in the moment. And let's get two back, okay? So I birdie the hardest hole, which yeah. would never have even thought. That's just a bonus. Yeah. Then I birdie eight, so I get back to even. Now the goal is, all right, let's get it to two under. Okay, so I birdie. Which gets you to your number at that you had identified at the beginning right. of the week, right? That right. no one else would have figured. Right. So I get a birdie 10 and a par 11 and birdie 12. So now I'm two. I said, let's get to four. Okay, so those small goals make my mind realize it's very obtainable. But I'm not saying there's par five coming up or there's short par four. Let's go one shot at a time and figure it out. But the greatest part about that parable is goes back to when I secured my PJ Tour card for the first time. Going in the week, I was T28 on the money list and top 25 gets your card. And the final round, I was two back and tied for second. I had to finish solo third or better in order to get my card. And um, I just shot even on the front nine and was three back or something going in the back. I just birdied 10. So I was making a little bit of a move and I thought I had to shoot 300 or better on the back nine. So 11 is one of the hardest holes out on the golf course. It's, I had a beautiful drive. I had a great four on the 30 feet. Ran the putt by six feet and missed it coming back. So I just bogeyed the hole, gave back a lot of momentum. And walking off the green, I said, what would the farmer say? My caddy said, you know, it's neither good nor bad. <laughs> following hole, this is great. They had just moved the tee up 30 yards and it's a dog light right par four. The pin is right on the front of the green, about four paces on and it's water short. And I just watched Sam Burns. Well, first of all, I was gonna hit last. Or I was going to hit first, okay? Yeah. And um, I was going to hit first, but instead, because I, I bogeyed the hole before, I was now hitting last. So, I watched Sam Burns, who I know hits it 20 yards by me, and Connor Godsey hit it 20 yards, but they both hit driver, and they landed about 20 yards over the pin, rolled the back of the green. I now knew that driver was absolutely perfect club. I can make a committed, confident swing that I can hit this thing up there on the green. And if I would have gone first... I would have probably laid up or made an uncommitted swing. And because I dropped a shot on the hole before by making bogey, 
I was able to hit last, make a committed swing. I hit driver up to eight feet, make eagle, birdie the next, par the next, and eagle the next. So I go four under through four holes. I lost one shot in order to pick up four. What would the farmer say? Being being able to reframe those situations and to switch the narrative might be the greatest edge earning action, force multiplier that we could identify, right? Because the narratives that it's like the golfer's condition, I've heard it called, where we make bogey and the narratives that go through a golfer's head, like we couldn't we couldn't say them on a podcast, the things that that most golfers are saying to themselves, right? Right. And so to have the ability, I think that if anybody listening gets anything out of this conversation, it's having that ability and having that willingness and openness to find the more empowering narrative. Cause that's essentially what you're, you're saying right there. So as we look forward and the PJ tour, the next season is just around the corner. When do you have a time to sit down and kind of refresh the goals and look at it? And have you had that time yet as you're looking ahead right now? And you may be, you've got two more weeks of, of playoffs to go. So where's your kind of goals as you're looking forward here? Well, I have actually, once I got my tour card, I did change my goals yeah. and my goal was to improve my status. I just made it very, very simple is I was 23rd on the money list and you're going to get 20 starts, but I knew that if I could play well in the finals and I could really improve my position and my primary goal was to finish number one and number one gets full status and into the player's championship. So there's still a lot to play for, but I had nothing to lose because if I miss the cut, finish dead last in every tournament, my position's going to go from 47th to 50th. So I could go play relaxed, free up golf and improve my my position. And, uh, I'm sure, We'll see what happens in these next two. There's still two more playoff events, but if I end up playing well and having that full status, then I will be able to, you know, set my schedule and go about it that way and be able to change my goals in a different area. But now, since I'm not quite guaranteed full status, the fall is still going to mean a lot into reshuffling and stuff. So my goals are going to be dictated on how these next two events go and how they, how it unfolds, but I will be able to to reset those for sure. Well, I guarantee you, you have just earned some diehard fans that are going to be cheering really, really hard for you the next week and the next couple weeks and the season to come. So I know you have a tea time. Kramer, congratulations on an awesome week last week, an awesome two years here, and we're wishing you uh, more success. Thanks for it. We're going to let you get to your tea time here. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with us. Thanks, Corey. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.